Ladies and gentlemen, here we are. We're live, in person. My name's Brendan, and I'm probably one of the top 60 or 70 Brendans to live right now. And that's not being optimistic, there's just not many of us. And I think I'm definitely in the top 100. Thank you for being here. This is my show, The State of the Universe. Clever name, I know. You don't have to tell me that. I know it's a damn good name. Today we have the great, the powerful, the amazing, the smart, the intelligent, the brilliant even, Dr. Priya Natarajan. She's a professor in the departments of astronomy and physics at Yale. She studies cosmology. She studies gravitational lensing. She studies black holes. She studies dark matter, dark energy, big questions. How do these things play a role? in the universe we occupy today. And how did they play that role throughout cosmic time? How did they play that role a billion years ago? Two billion years ago? All the way back to the inflationary epoch in the early universe. She is also the author of a book, new book. I'm reading it right now. It's called Mapping the Heavens, the radical scientific ideas that reveal the cosmos. And we talk about some of these radical ideas. Because they fall in line with the things she studies. Because to be in this field, to be in her field in particular, not just in astrophysics, but in particular, when you study dark matter, dark energy, black holes, you gotta be willing to have some radical ideas. And she has those radical ideas. And so we talk to her about them. We talk to her about how those ideas have changed, not just in her, but in the community at large, over decades, over centuries. She's also on the scientific advisory board of Nova Science Now, which is really cool. She also holds the Sophie Antico Brahe Professorship at the Dark Cosmology Center of the Niels Bohr Institute, the University of Copenhagen, Denmark. And she was recently elected to an honorary professorship for life at the University of Delhi. And I hope that you enjoy our conversation. We talk about all the great things. We talk about dark matter. We talk about dark energy. We talk about black holes. We talk about a recent discovery that was made that validated a prediction that she made over 20 years ago. She was featured on Science Friday last week to talk about the same things. Well, guess what? Science Friday, they can't compare to this show. You want to know why? They don't have this funky music in the background. That's all it takes. I'm just dancing as I do this intro, because this funk is just getting to me, down to my bones. Man, and it's bringing me up too, because I wasn't having a good day. I'm feeling a little down in the dumps, down in those depressive dumps, but this this funk is, br is bringing my mood up. And I thank you for tuning in, people. The link is in the description to buy Priya's book. I encourage you to do so. It's a fantastic book. I'm reading it right now, and I encourage you to do the same. You don't have to. But if you're interested in what she has to say and what we have to talk about, you can find more of that. With that being said, people, this is the state of the universe. You can like, rate, review the show wherever you listen. I hope you do that because that helps us. You can go on Patreon, become a patron if you want, if you so choose. But you don't have to because this is free. And it always will be. Oh, the funk is bringing out some rhymes. All right, people, enjoy the episode. Bye-bye. Two, one. Priya, thank you. Thank you so much. 
It's been a long time coming. We've been trying to set this up forever. And I'm so happy that here at the end of February 2019, you're able to join us here on the State of the Universe. You are, I think, I think I'm safe to say this, the highest profile guest I've been able to host. And I, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, thanks, Brendan. Delighted to be on. And I'm sorry that it took uh, so much coordinating. Um, but hey, delighted to be on. Yeah, it's fine. I, you know, we're all busy. We're all we got to make times and it's 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 complicated. It's a complicated world out there. But that's expected because you and I study some of the most complicated things and some of the most interesting things, I think, in the entire universe. So we have so much to talk about. But I want to give the people listening an introduction. Most of them already know. Some of them might not. You study three primary things. You could say that you're a cosmologist, you study cosmology, but but in essence, you study, if I'm not mistaken, dark energy, dark matter, black holes. Those are the big ones, right? Yeah. So I think we should go down the list and, and devote maybe two or three minutes to each one. I want to do dark energy first, and I want to do dark matter last, because... The dark matter conversation is going to get us into something that I really want to touch on. So dark energy, the universe is expanding. It's accelerating. Can you explain the role that dark energy plays in this very, very quickly? Right. So, um, yeah, I like to think that I'm sort of interested in sort of the invisible entities. And it turns out that these entities actually shape the universe together. Um, so dark energy, you know, in 1920s, Edwin Hubble discovered that the universe was expanding. So it was um, the distances between galaxies was increasing as a function of time. And he actually found this interesting correlation that the, the speed, the recession velocity with which these galaxies appeared to be receding away from each other was proportional to their distance from us as measured from us as a vantage point. And, you know, and this, he was able to go out up to, a you know, the distance, uh, a, you know, certain ways out because he was limited by the methods that he was using to, you know, you had to simultaneously measure the velocity as well as the distance to these distant galaxies. So he was using these um, cepheids, uh, these variable stars. It might sound a little weird, but... These variable stars have a very interesting and tight correlation that allows you to use their variability to figure out where they are, so a measure of distance. And he was using spectra to figure out the velocities, right? So he was only go, able to go out to where the technology permitted him at that time. Till then, till that distance out, he found that it was a linear relation. So it wasn't till 1998 that astronomers realized uh, that they were a, able to extend the Hubble diagram, the so-called Hubble diagram, this correlation between recession velocity and distance, much, much further out. And instead of the Cepheids, they were, used, they were now able to use um, a very standard light bulb, uh, a type 1A supernovae. These are standard candles which basically like a bulb, light bulb whose wattage we actually know. So if you see, you know, have a 60 watt bulb and you see it really dim, you know that you're really far away from it. So they were able to use these extremely well calibrated supernovae to extend way beyond. And what they found was something really surprising. They found that the universe was not just expanding, but this acceleration was, uh, this expansion was actually accelerating. 
And, you know, this acceleration, as we know from sort of common everyday experience, right, if you're in your car and you want to accelerate, you have to press the gas pedal, you have to consume fuel, you have to somehow supply energy in order to accelerate. So I think that's sort of where the term dark energy stems from. It is the sort of mysterious energy that seems to be powering the accelerating expansion of the universe that was very recently measured. So, um, you know, the standard candle um, use of supernovae is one way to measure it. There are many, many other independent techniques to measure it and to quantify it. So the methodology that I have been interested in is using um, clusters of galaxies and a phenomenon you, uh, known as gravitational lensing, which is the bending of light from distant sources that gets bent because of the large amount of dark matter that is present in clusters of galaxies that lie between us and the distant galaxies. So you can actually, um, the strength of the lensing, it turns out, also depends on the geometry. So the relative distance between us, this cluster that acts as a lens, and these distant galaxies. And it depends on the ratio of these distances uh, very similar to the supernova method, which actually depends just on the distance. So lensing offers, because of the dependence via the ratios, it actually um, offers you a brand new independent technique to measure the accelerating expansion of the universe. What is powerful about this technique, I'll talk about the power as well as the limitations, right? So, mm -hmm. so we sort of devised, it's called cluster strong lensing uh, uh, cosmography, um, what is powerful about this technique is that because there are clusters at various distances from us, the lenses are kind of distributed over a range of redshift and therefore distance from us, we can actually use this method potentially to see if this mysterious dark energy actually varies in time. So that is something we don't know. And the first discovery of dark energy showed that it was consistent with being a cosmological constant with sort of a fixed value mm -hmm. that does not vary over time. And however, now many independent methods that are trying to corroborate the existence of dark energy um, are finding that there could be room for this dark energy to actually evolve with redshift or with time. And so the cluster strong lensing methodology offers a very powerful way to actually probe that. Having said that, you know, so we proposed this method and tried to work out all the systematic um, errors, the sources of error, how to combat them, how to minimize them. So it's, of course, very, very challenging. So one of the limitations of uh, this method is that you're use, you're going to have to use the same data set to both constrain, simultaneously constrain the dark matter content in the cluster as well as the geometry. So you cannot completely disentangle them. You can make the recovery of these two entangled pieces, because I said the strength of the lensing depends on how much dark matter you have as well as the geometry. So you can't completely separate out the two pieces, but you can do them simultaneously. And that is tricky. That requires a lot of high precision data. So basically, you need to know um, spectroscopically where every background galaxy that is lensed is and so on. So you need lots of high fidelity data to actually get this method to work. And so that's challenging. Um, mm -hmm. So 
you know, we've been able to make some inroads into showing that this is very competitive method with the standard supernovae method and other methods that involve galaxy clustering and so on um, with a new data set that just, um, just got in hand from the Hubble Space Telescope called the Frontier Fields Initiative. Yes, yeah, so dark matter, you, you, dark energy rather, you mentioned something uh, very important and it touches me. It's the thing that got me into science. Dark energy, black holes, dark matter. Something about them, even the name, the way we call them dark or black, implies that they're a little fuzzy. We, we don't quite understand them, right? We can infer that they're there. We can infer that the universe is expanding. We can infer that a black hole harbors, or a black hole is harbored at the center of our galaxy and many, many, many others. In fact, maybe every one. We can infer that this mysterious dark matter must be there. Uh, but we can't detect it, you know, with, with the typical ways in which we use the word detection. We can't see it. We can't lay eyes on it. We can merely infer that it's there by its interaction. And that's the thing that got me. It hooked me. I'm like, wow, that's really cool. There's something that the entire scientific community has a consensus on. The consensus, though, is that we don't know what it is. And that idea always like touched a part of my brain and I, and I imagine it touched yours too because you you have the smartest people in the world and the consensus that they've come to is we don't know what it is we don't know why it's there and that makes me want to want to be the person or a part of the group of people that can progress and figure out the fundamental structure of the universe and answer these questions right yeah so i think that um you know, part of the, it's an uncomfortable consensus in a way, right? Because uh, we have a full census of the contents of the universe and it's dominated by these entities that we scarcely know what they are. We know what they do, we don't know what they are, right? Right. I think for me, what has been tantalizing is it's the visible that always renders the invisible. Mm -hmm. so it's actually light that reveals everything to us in the universe. So for me, that paradox is kind of was very exciting. The fact that you could use light and the way light uh, gets bent um, around by dark matter. And as I said, you know, for to probe dark energy as well. And of course, how um, light kind of manifests um, in terms of um, bending around black holes. So the fact that, you know, our cosmic messenger light is just so critical. I mean, that it really does illuminate everything, you know? I mean, it sounds a little banal to say that, but uh, for me, that was what was exciting. That, you know, light itself, to me, is just the most intriguing thing. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to talk about black holes, but we're not going to do much explaining what they are. And here's why. People, I did a whole episode on black holes recently. It's actually become one of my most popular episodes because I think that uh, people are inherently interested in this idea of what is a black hole. That's episode 25 of my podcast. I did an hour long, just me talking about the history of our understanding of black holes. So you can go listen to that. But I do want to ask you something, okay? I want to ask you how you conceptualize black holes. And what I mean by that is not how you ex it necessarily explain it to the public because we all have sort of mechanisms for doing that and i i've gone through many of them on here tons i always try to you know i break it down my my favorite's the the idea that you could throw a photon in the air and it, it goes up and it falls back down like a ball here on the earth that's the one that that works for me or a bed sheet and you put things on it you know 
Yeah, but um, I want to ask, recently, I was at a talk at the center, the CCRG, the center that I work at. Uh, we model black holes. Some of the smartest people in the field are there working on models of black holes, the, the region surrounding black holes, accretion disks, the gas swirling around these black holes and falling in. And there was a talk, and after the talk, we were socializing, and I asked them. I asked a few people. I was like, do you guys ever think, like, we, we, we sit here and we work on modeling black holes, but do you ever step away from the code? Do you ever step away from the computer and try to conceptualize it in your own brain? Like, try to say, what's inside? What's beyond that event horizon? What's going on back there where we can't see? And you have an interest in philosophy, philosophy of science. You, you started a PhD in the philosophy of science many, many years ago. I'm curious. Is there a way that you conceptualize it in your head? Do you ever think about this? Like, what's going on inside of a black hole? Right. I mean, aside, you know, I'll get to your first question first. The idea of how do I conceptualize a black hole? And this is what is interesting, um, is that I don't have a fixed conception, right, of what a black hole is. Yeah, me either. Convenient, convenient to the problem that I'm trying to solve, I use the conception uh, and model it in a way that's most convenient for the particular setting. So if I'm trying to understand the accretion history of a black hole and growth via accretion, then I model in my head the black hole as an extremely compact object. So an object that's surrounded by an accretion disk. And I don't worry about the singularity. When I do the problem at that level, I don't actually worry about the singularity uh, that it encases, right? Um, mm -hmm. Where the event horizon is matters, where the Schwarzschild radius is matters, a thousand times, 10 to the five times the Schwarzschild radius. These are sort of scales that are, you know, the sort of uh, cascading scales outside that are relevant to feeding a black hole. So when I'm thinking about the feeding problem, I conceive of black holes as a compact object. And then when I'm thinking of, um, you know, uh, black hole mergers, supermassive black holes crashing against each other and the kinds of electromagnetic signatures and things that they could produce, I think of them very much as space-time singularities with an event horizon, right? Mm -hmm. So I think part of what I do, and I presume a lot of people like me who work on various aspects of this problem, because, you know, my work spans various a phenomenon on various scales around black holes. And in fact, the basic question that drives me is how to connect these scales. Um, I find that my method for solving problems in general is to kind of pare them down. I pare things down to the basics. And of course, they, that is where, you know, knowledge and intuition and experience comes in, where you can take a problem and say, okay, what can I approximate? What is a sensible approximation? What can I ignore? And what is essential to solve this problem? That discrimination, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, so therefore, anytime I um, am working on a, a black hole, a problem on either feeding black holes, um, merging black holes, or the consequences of black holes, you know, the impact, their impact on their surroundings. We now know they have outsized impact on their surroundings. So depending on the context, I think of them in a bunch of different ways. As for thinking about the deeper problem of what is inside the event horizon. So, you know, I had the good fortune of um, knowing Stephen Hawking when I did my PhD at Cambridge in England. And I remember him uh, giving this very nice analogy about where we are at um, in terms of our understanding of what's going on in the event horizon. 
And I often quote this when people ask me, and because it really guides my own thinking. Look, I mean, this is obviously an unsolved problem at the moment. It's an unsettled problem as to what is the structure of the inter- of the event horizon. Can we even think of it as being structured or not, and so on, right? Mm-hmm. There are many people working on it. In fact, Hawking was working on it till he died. Um, so his analogy, which is what guides me in my thinking and my conception, is think of an Encyclopedia Britannica that contains all the information, say, you know, let's say it has all the knowledge that we need, right? And I look up, I want to look up New Delhi, which is the capital of India, and I want to find out everything I want to find out about it. I look and I read, whatever. Then I burn the Encyclopedia Britannica, but I encase it in a tight box, a box that is so vacuum sealed that nothing leaves the box, nothing enters the box. I just burn it down, right? I burn it down to ashes, but not a single speck of the ashes has actually left that tight box. So what's the situation? The situation is that, you know, the information that I just read before I burnt it down, that New Delhi is the capital of India, all kinds of, you know, details about New Delhi are in there, okay? They've not left, they've not gone anywhere. They're still there. It's just that, A, I don't know how they're stored anymore because it's no longer recognizable paper and ink, printed paper and ink. Second, I no longer know how to retrieve it because previously I would just move my hand over the papers, run my eyes, read the printed word, and move on and learn stuff, right, about New Delhi. So the fact is that we don't actually know A, how the material is stored anymore, and B, we don't know how to recover it. And I think that's really, you know, it's such an apt analogy because I think that really is even the state of affairs today. And so I just think of, the, when I think about what might be happening in the inside the event horizon, I think um, I'm often kind of stymied at how do I, do I think about the event horizon, uh, or horizon as having a physical structure? Um, is it, um, you know, what really happens to material, right? Because we're always thinking about material falling into a black hole. So how is the material uh, responding to the gravitational forces when you fall inside um, the event horizon? So, you know, much in many ways, I, when I'm, even when I model what's happening with the growth of a black hole and the infalling material into it, you know, I really kind of think of the, uh, event horizon, I model it, I reduce it in my modeling to basically a place where if a gas packet crosses that, then, you know, it's on its way in. In fact, for much of the work that I do, you know, even well further outside the event horizon for all practical purposes, if a gas packet has made it fast about, you know, a thousand times the event horizon, um, you know, in my modeling, it's pretty much in there. It's gone. Right. Yeah. I. That's an actually an Excellent analogy, and I haven't heard that before. Did Stephen Hawking write that down? Was that in his books? Because I've I've read A Brief History of Time, and I don't remember. No, it's, it's not from The Brief History of Time. So, you know, I'm not that old, so I was in Cambridge much after The Brief History of Time. Right, uh, yeah, naturally. This is something he uh, probably talked about. I definitely um, had a conversation about, uh, about it with him, so... This is um, my recollection from a conversation. He might have talked about it at some conference or the other. It's a fantastic analogy. And, and you, we, we touched on something in here, something that, that we're going to come back to. And that's how black holes sort of 
are related to their environment. Well, we're going to come back to that in a minute, but first, let's get into the fi- the final one of the trio, dark matter. How do we infer the existence of dark matter? And more importantly, Priya, how confident are you in the idea that there is a dark matter and there's not some alternative theory that will be proposed in the future? Yeah. So um, before we close out on black holes, let me just say that I'm also quite, you know, I'm interested um, in the formation of the first black holes. To me, that's one of the most intriguing questions, right? Open yes. Questions. And we're going to talk about that. We are. Yeah. So, and, you know, dark matter, um, how, you know, I just think that there's incontrovertible, overwhelming evidence from so many independent probes that, um, it's very hard to imagine that dark matter as an entity does not exist. Having said that, you know, um, as someone who is interested, as you mentioned, deeply in the history and philosophy of science, I know that we have to keep an open mind. So I'm, you know, open-minded about it. And I'm happy to entertain any other credible hypotheses while being completely aware that it's going to be very, very hard to come up with an alternative theory that actually replicates all the successes of the current cold dark matter theory and more and offers uh, further predictions that can be tested, right? So I, I can see the challenge of coming up with an alternative theory. It's not easy. Um, meanwhile, I do think that um, it's worthwhile, and a lot of my own work has been uh, from you know using lensing methods, trying to map spatially the distribution of dark matter in as high resolution as possible. Because we know this sort of cold dark matter, which is the current understanding of dark matter, is that it's constituted of these particles that were likely um, formed sometime in the extremely early universe, but they have very peculiar properties that they don't actually interact with each other. They we are any of the conventional forces, if at all, maybe they very weakly interact with each other. So essentially, they cluster only because of gravity, because they have mass, because they are matter. And however, they do cluster, so they clump. And over the age of the universe, part of our understanding of how galaxies and all the other structures that we do see in the universe evolve, we... um, our theoretical understanding hinges on dark matter actually structuring everything. So dark matter is heaped in regions, and these heaped regions are where gas falls in. You form galaxies and clusters of galaxies and so on. So, um, But using the light bending uh, with extremely high-resolution data from the Hubble Space Telescope, once again, one can actually map the granularity of the dark matter distribution in clusters of galaxies, these, these incredibly efficient lenses that I mentioned earlier. And so from these very detailed uh, distributions, spatial distributions, these mountains and valleys uh, distribution of dark matter, you can actually test the real data. You can extract it from lensing analysis, and then you can go into your theoretical models in simulations where you assume the dark matter particle is a cold dark matter particle, and you can see if these maps, spatial maps, actually um, look identical or they look similar, or um, or and you can compare with other simulations with dark matter particles that have other properties, like warm dark matter particles that actually do cluster as well, but they they're not as granular. They're much more smoothly distributed. So, you know, a lot of my own work has been trying to sort of stress test this cold dark matter model. And I have to say, even though, you know, the agreement 
of the lensing data, the cluster lensing data and these dark matter maps that I make, even with increasing resolution, right? Uh, I was very hopeful, right? Every time the um, we got better, deeper data, lensing data, that maybe we can falsify this model. Maybe I can find, you know, some kind of crack. I have not been able to. So the model is in reasonably good agreement, you know, given all the limitations of modeling and techniques and so on with cold dark matter. And that said, um, you know, so my goal has been to really push this model to see, you know, is there a break point? Because in science, we often find that the break point, the places where inconsistencies, anomalies start to present themselves, often, not always, but often they might point the way to a brand new theory, a brand new way of looking at things, and it may show us some important limitation. So at the moment, I don't see a major crack in this uh, model, but there are some interesting minor issues that have cropped up from time to time. Um, there are two very interesting ones that I'm actively working on. And, you know, and the challenge is to see whether, you know, the inconsistency or the anomaly that you see, whether it's a consequence of um, something fundamental uh, that is off in our assumptions about the properties of dark matter, or whether it stems from some limitations in our tools. But, you know, simulation methods have limitations uh, and so on. So I think the jury is out on that, but I am entirely open-minded. I think most scientists really should be, um, except that, you know, the model works tantalizingly well at the moment, I have to say. Right. I'm so glad that you approached that question the way you did, because I, I picked dark matter last for a reason. The reason is that within the confines of dark energy, black holes, and dark matter, dark matter is the model, I would say, with the most internal contention, the one with the most uh, theorists sort of approaching the problem from different angles. And I think all of these, all three of these ideas, dark energy, black holes, dark matter, some of them were proposed before the 20th century, but essentially all of them were pioneered from a theoretical standpoint during the 20th century. They were radical ideas. When they were proposed, when you were coming up with this data in the early 20th century, not you, obviously, but astronomers, when you were coming up with this data in the in the early 20th century and you're looking at it, you have to come to the idea that something really weird is going on, something that defies logic, something that you can't immediately conceptualize. And it makes the ideas radical. It makes them groundbreaking. And you wrote a book that analyzed these scientific ideas, mapping the heavens, the radical scientific ideas that reveal the cosmos. And you approach each of these ideas, and you go through the theoretical underpinnings that led us to such radical ideas. Ideas that if you told them to someone in the 17th century or someone in the 18th century, they would be like, what? Are you stupid? What are you even saying? You know? And so that is fundamentally what's so cool about science, I think. And you touched on something, Priya, that I, I absolutely love. You said, I keep an open mind. You said that the jury is out. And that is so important because this is a topic that is so misunderstood from outsiders, from people on the outside of science. And I think that it has led to anti-science, science denialism, that sort of thing in culture. Because people on the outside looking in tend to think that we pick a theory and we try to prove it correct. 
But in actuality, and I think you would agree with this, Priya, we make careers by taking a theory and proving it wrong. That's how we right. build careers. Right. No, but I think that, you know, uh, and I think the issue is, um, so I want to make a couple of points that yes. um, in response to stuff that you raised. First of all, I think that, you know, it's the ideas, right? It's the confluence of ideas and instruments that has even enabled us to come up with, you know, um, these radical notions. Like if we didn't have the instruments, we wouldn't have been able to see the sort of evidence that points us to uh, uh, to not being able to explain, right? So you're finding this inexplicable uh, observational data that just then forces you to take an imaginative leap, a creative leap, and come up with uh, with these ideas, right? So, so that's sort of, you know, that's what's been happening um, over time. But, you know, when you look at, um, you know, at any radical idea like, say, the dark matter, right? So it's going. There's going to be contention amongst us astronomers and astrophysicists working from the theory end and the observational end, and those internal debates. I think what has really changed. The reason why some of these debates have started to become fodder for denialism of science is that these debates, these um, were mostly internal, right? Till mm -hmm. very recently. Till we started living in a globalized world with social media and email and all these things connecting us, when the world shrunk so that, you know, you can have a discovery that happens in the United States and in a minute or less, what has happened can be transmitted around the world, right? So we really decreased the sort of the time that it takes. We also opened up our community, right, to all the internal debates are now in full public view. And so what can happen and what has happened in society, not just with the dark matter case, you know, I don't think the denialism of science that we see rampant in culture today is, is you know, dark, the dark matter controversy or the debates within our community are directly responsible for it. But it's questions like these where the community itself is continuing to have intellectual debates, which is healthy, which is very much part of science, mm -hmm. and which is the process by which any new idea will I will get tested, validated, accepted, or discarded. So that's a very live, dynamic process that is part of our community. And I think this is part of science in many, many problems. What you have now is a political social culture in which people with other agendas are trying to exploit this uh, discussion, this disagreement, internal disagreement that is intellectually driven, that's about facts and evidence um, into more ideological silos. So I think, you know, that's sort of what is happening, but it doesn't, you know, we can't give up uh, the way of doing science. Um, I just think that now all of these debates are going to get, there's no way out of this now. All these debates are going to get played out publicly. And therefore, as scientists, it's our duty to keep clarifying that this is very much part of science. This is, science is provisional. This is the deep nature of science is that it's provisional. All our knowledge is best to date. And that the minute we have new evidence, new data come in, that we have to be open to changing our minds. And, and I think this is, you know, having pontificated about this to you, I mean, you can see, right, this is pretty hard for the public to take on board, right? Because it's very disorienting. The pace of scientific discovery is so 
high right now, right? Yeah. It's so rapid discoveries all, all the time, right? We're like bombarded with new discoveries. It really is a golden age for many, many fields at the moment, definitely astronomy and astrophysics. So you can see the public feeling very disoriented with this idea of provisionality. As like, oh, you know, one day you say this, the next day you say that. Well, you know, in some cases, of course, you know, um, that has to do with poor uh, rapport in a lot of cases it's essential to the nature of science that things are evolving our understanding is evolving and i think if we scientists can demystify the process of science to the public uh, i mean we are accountable to the public because we are all funded by taxpayers money all of our money collectively goes into supporting this enterprise and i think it behooves us to explain not just our results we have a lot of wonderful astronomers definitely who can talk very, very articulately about the science, the results, the new discoveries. But I think we need people, um, and I definitely see myself as one of that tribe, who also talk, in addition to passing on the excitement of doing science and the discoveries, also talk about the process of science, kind of explain how scientists work, what they do, and what science really is. What is the nature of science? The fact that it's so dynamic, it's a very dynamic process and um, and also point out that, you know, we have human limitations. We have, you know, much as even as scientists, I think one of the motivations for writing the book for me was to reveal that even though scientists are trained to always have an open mind, they don't, they also struggle uh, because they're human, right? So there's a psychological side to science. Um, you know, we are, as humans, we don't like rapid change. We don't, We feel very disoriented by rapid change. So um, I think um, it's important to sort of reveal that, you know, science is provisional and it has uncertainties, and yet it is driven by facts and evidence that are not subjective. And that, you know, you can make a measurement in Rochester, in New Haven, where I am, or in Timbuktu, and you will recover Newton's laws if you roll balls down incline planes. Yeah, that's fantastic. I agree completely. And uh, I think that what you said, you you want to be both an insider and an outsider. You want to be able to communicate not only scientific discoveries, but also the process of science. That's what I hope to do as well. That's something that I find lacking a lot of times in scientific communication is generally the people that do the communication aren't the people doing the work. So you have a problem. And the other problem is that science is inherently not news that can be communicated through headlines. It has to be communicated through lengthy discussion. That's why scientific papers tend to be so damn long and so excruciating to read. Because the details are not bullet points. The details are lengthy. You have to be able to delve into them. And you cannot just read a headline that says, dark matter might not exist. Because the truth of the matter is that the article that that summary paper might be based on is so much more complex. Absolutely. Spot on. Yeah, and so now... I want to move on to something. You, uh, recently, you were featured on Science Friday this past week for something. Something big. You made a prediction. We, we were talking about black holes. We skirted by the idea that black holes are related 
in some way through some feedback mechanism with the galaxy that harbors them. Now I want to delve into that a little bit more. Can you tell me, Priya, about the prediction you made back in 1999 and how it's come to bear fruit recently? Cool. I'm so excited about this that I will happily rattle on. Um, so, you know, in 1999, uh, which is when I wrote the paper, uh, when I was a graduate student at Cambridge and with my co-author, Stein Sigurdsson, who was a postdoc then and is currently a faculty member at Penn State, um, you know, in 1998, at that time, we didn't know a whole lot about supermassive black holes. We knew how supermassive black holes are likely powered. We knew that many of them shone as quasars. Um, and we knew that um, they were likely harbored in the centers of galaxies. And we kind of knew that they probably occurred, you know, sort of in two states in nature. So they were either fasting, so you would not be actually seeing these lurking supermassive black hole monsters as quasars. So they would just be sitting in the centers, in the very centers of galaxies, or they would be shining as quasars. And in 1998, there was a very interesting um, correlation that was published for nearby black holes ones that are uh, fasting, so they are not shining as quasars, they're dormant, and uh, they are detected basically by the dynamical effect they have on the stars right around them. And a correlation was found between the mass of the black hole and um, the mass of stars in the inner region of the galaxy. So this is a scale, um, the stars distributed on a scale well outside the sphere of gravitational influence of the black hole, right? So black holes, remember I mentioned, can be thought of as very compact objects. So if you think about how compact they are, although they have intense gravity, there is a region, there's a sort of a sphere of influence within which the black hole's gravity dominates when they're sitting inside a galaxy because the other components of the galaxy start to bulk up, stars, gas, and dark matter. So eventually there's a, there's a scale fairly small, um, um, where basically the black hole, um, black hole's influence ceases. And this correlation between the mass of the black hole and mass of the stars in an extended distribution, much further out than the region of influence, was suggested that there was a way in which these two scales, this very compact region around the black hole and the antics of the black hole were somehow connected to the physics of star formation, right? And so that was the big open question at that time. And in fact, uh, my thesis work was sort of exploring what would be those connections. Anyway, the technical term for that is called co-evolution. So how do black holes co-evolve with their hosts? You know, starting from how they form, how they end up there, and so on and so forth. So then that was my thesis work. And when this correlation was published, it was pretty clear that you had to have some kind of physical process that would connect these two very disparate physical scales in the centers of galaxies. And so, you know, um, I had this sort of imaginative, radical leap. Um, and, you know, to me, it seemed very obvious at the time. It didn't seem particularly creative or imaginative. I'm saying all of this uh, because of the reactions that people had afterwards, right? After I proposed mm -hmm. this idea and we discussed it, they said, oh, my God, this is really speculative. It's cute and creative, but it's speculative. Um, but so I realized that somehow, and, you know, there was an easy way to think about how could you couple these two different scales? You basically had to have a situation where 
look at circumstances when a growing black hole could somehow power an outflow or a wind that would actually have a reach that could be propelled out to very large distances. And so pushing a wind out, whether that wind be you know, just radiation that was being pushed out or the wind, the radiation from the matter that is falling onto the black holes, you basically repurpose some of that energy to do this pushing out. And depending on the contents of what's around and the scales out to which you can push, maybe you could push some gas out. So that was the case that I was very, very interested in, that I wanted to see if we could push gas out to these large radii. And the reason I wanted to push gas out was because, you know, it's gas that ultimately forms stars, right? So if I wanted to correlate the, you know, stellar component and its properties, somehow I had to create a piston from the black hole that would modulate the formation of stars. So this was my piston. I said, ah, this could be an outflow, whatever. And it, this was great, but then you had to work out the consequences. So one intriguing consequence of this was that if it was matter that was pushed out in this outflow, which is what we wanted because we wanted it to impact the formation of stars somehow, you know, and this is called feedback. And, you know, and, and over the last 20 years, right, I mean, this is a veritable industry and, you know, this is much developed. We know a lot more about how this operates. But at that time, we had no idea, right? And so then I realized that if we pushed all this gas out and there was a lot of gas swept out into a shell, then there would be a very different, intriguing signature. And this signature would be that, you know, you have this relic radiation from the Big Bang that has been streaming towards us and it started out very hot, but it has been cooling ever since because of the expansion of the universe. And so when this radiation, and we are bathed in it in all directions, but when this radiation on its way to us encounters a ball of hot gas, basically hot electrons, because most of the gas in the universe is hydrogen. If it's ionized, it's basically electrons. Then, because these photons, this light, ancient light, is cooler than the hot electrons, they will interact. And when we are looking at the universe through, behind these blobs of hot gas, the photons, the relic radiation that we see, is actually heated up. So you see a ghost, if you will, a shadow of these hot electrons on the microwave background radiation, which is measured in radio wavelengths. So we, I computed that at 130 gigahertz, it's a very, um, it's a radio frequency, sub-millimeter wavelengths, that you should be able to see this effect. So this effect had already been proposed by Rashid Sunyaev and um, Zeldovich, Yakov Zeldovich, Russians uh, in the 1960s and 70s. And they had worked out that you would see these shadows in clusters of galaxies because clusters of galaxies contain a big sort of fat ball of electrons in their center. The gravitational potential confines a huge amount of matter in the form of ionized sort of hot gas, and which glows in the x-rays. So, so we already knew it was there, but we also see it as an imprint in radio wavelengths, once again, on this cosmic microwave background radiation. So this is called the Sunyaev-Zeldovich effect. And so this imprint that the hot ball has actually has two pieces to it. 
And in the case of clusters, the piece that dominates is just the hotness, the temperature of the electrons, the difference in the temperature between the electrons and the cool um, photons. But then if this ball of electrons was actually moving at very large speeds, then you would get an amplification of this shadow. You get an amplification of this Sunyaev-Zeldovich effect uh, from the kinematic part, if this ball of gas was actually moving. So I think in some sense, that was really sort of the clever thing that I figured out, that in the case of outflows driven by supermassive black holes, although the mass of the gas might not be that large, in order to get an appreciable Sunyaev-Zeldovich effect, it would help because these outflows were actually moving very fast. So the, the compounding of the temperature and the, um, um, the velocity of the outflow would actually give you a detectable Sunyaev-Zeldovich effect and so that was, and that was my aha moment. They were like, oh, this is most peculiar, but it's a very unique signature. It's dis distinguishable from that that would be produced by the Sunyaev-Zeldovich from clusters. But sadly, at the time, there was no instrument that had the resolution to detect it. I mean, there were some plans to build instruments. So um, about three and a half, four years ago, this incredible array of 66 radio telescopes dishes called the ALMA array, Atacama Large Millimeter Array, was put up in Chile. And I kind of knew that maybe after a few years, you know, it's been operating in phases, they've been turning on the antennae. So I knew that by the time the entire array was turned on, this kind of observation would become totally possible. So I think what was super exciting is that at the end of last year, the first such detection of a quasar outflow and the Sunyaev-Zeldovich effect from it um, happened. This is incredibly cool because for two reasons. Number one, this is ideal science. You make a prediction. It comes true. Or it gets falsified. In your case, 20 years later, when you begin working on different stuff, I imagine this isn't sitting in the forefront of your mind. It's just kind of resting in the back on a, on a shelf. It gets proven correct. That's really cool. That is how science is meant to be done. And we are actually at a, in a time now in our scientific lives, in science in general, where we are able to make predictions and get them validated or, or disvalidated in a single lifetime, right? Einstein made tons of predictions that couldn't get validated by the time that his life was up. And so I'm curious into a larger issue. You make this prediction. It gets validated. Yeah. How do you get notified? Do you see it in the literature? Does someone shoot you an email? Does someone cite a paper of yours? How do you get recognition for this? Right. So, I mean, I think first, you know, I want to um, remind, I wanted to state this um, in your podcast because I have been asked a lot by people um, after this whole thing broke, um, you know, was this paper peer reviewed and stuff? And actually it was. And we had a very tough referee uh, who really helped us um, who, who loved the speculation. It was actually Stirl Finney, a very eminent theoretical astrophysicist at Caltech. He was a referee of our paper. 
And he really helped us um, hone it. So, you know, I do want to give a shout out to him. Mm -hmm. Gratitude for having helped us uh, make this paper um, watertight. So I think, you know, I heard about it only after I saw the published paper, because in this particular case, you know, I am a theorist and I have been working on other aspects of black hole physics. I wrote that paper and, you know, I moved on to working on aspects of black hole physics, which is what, you know, is one strong thread in my research. But I've not, I was not involved in setting up an uh, observational program to go look for these and so on. So I actually saw this published um, as a first detection. And that's when I noticed and I was, you know, very, very excited. And, you know, the first detection was reported by Mark Lacey and his collaborators. It's a large team. Uh, he's based out of the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Virginia. So I think that, you know, what is, um, you know, when Einstein made the prediction, of course, you know, the theory of general relativity was had like very sweeping consequences, right? I mean, it was um, a pretty amazing uh, reworking of gravity, you know, of um, Newton's theory of gravity, reconceptualizing that was so powerful. I mean, in the case of these kinds of, you know, smaller scale discoveries that are not overturning the entire paradigm, but are pointing out sort of, you know, new directions. I mean, to me, what is exciting about this is that, you know, we predicted uncannily, we predicted the geometry in a cartoon, right? Mm -hmm. And that matches exactly what was found. To me, those are the kinds of intriguing things. And when you see what else we predict, we predict that you should see many more of these. And that this should be a new way of finding as yet undetected quasars. The reason being that these outflows are extremely long lived. So we know that quasars, as I mentioned earlier, fast and feast. So they have these episodic periods long. They're long. They're about 10 to the 7, 10 to the 8 years long. They shine for that period of time and then they shut off. They shut themselves off because they exhaust the fuel supply and, you know, they turn off and they become dead black holes. However, these outflows linger on beyond. So even when the black hole has stopped shining as a quasar because these ghostly shadows will linger on for extremely high redshift early quasars, which we believe are out there that we've been not able to find them because they're either too faint uh, because of how far away they are. Um, we should be able, and to me, that's what's exciting. This opens up a new way. And also key to this is the Sunyaev zeldovich effect. The strength of the signal is independent of the distance. And that's what's so cool about it. And so I think for me, what's exciting is the many new directions that this opens up that you know we were able to see then that if this were true this would mean many different things so one other important consequence i just want to mention uh, because that has you know there's sort of glimpses of that having been correct too is that we also went on further and wrote another paper about you know if you have this shell of gas this outflow what happens to this shell? It's a lot of gas that's swept out. Well, it's a lot of gas. I mean, the amount of gas depends on the mass of the black hole and sort of the overall energetics of, you know, how much energy gets converted into the piston to push stuff out. But this gas is of such a large value in terms of its mass uh, that it can fragment. It will fragment. It won't be a nice little neat spherical shell, but it will fragment and it could form either little globular clusters or dwarf galaxies. 
And what will be special about these structures that form is that, you know, normally, as I mentioned earlier um, when talking, the dark matter structures every pretty much everything in the universe, right? So every galaxy, there's, you know, there's a cocoon of dark matter into which gas falls, and that's where you sort of birth a galaxy. But in this instance, this would be a new way, a brand new way, where dark matter does not play a dominant role in shaping a galaxy or a globular cluster that forms. And this is particularly nice. Um, I love that aspect of it when we worked it out because, you know, globular clusters are these clusters are about a million stars that are very compactly distributed together that have no dark matter. So there's only the gravity of the stars is holding it together, the structure, not dark matter, unlike the case of galaxies. And increasingly, recently, we are starting to find galaxies, dwarf galaxies, that are quite deficient in dark matter. So it's just that, you know, um, that these outflows might, as I said, open up an entirely new way to think about how to structure the universe without, you know, where the black holes may play a starting role and not dark matter. So you published this paper all the way back in 1999. Your ideas get validated. It has far-reaching effects. You're doing this media tour, if, if you want to call it that. You're on Science Friday, you're on here, I've seen articles written about your discover the discovery that, that validates ideas you had very long ago. How important is it to you? Because scientists, we don't get film credits, right? We don't have an IMDB page, we don't get stars on the Walk of Fame. We live and die on whether or not our work gets cited, whether or not our work has far-reaching effects, and whether or not other people give us credit for our ideas. How important is it to you that you got the proper recognition in this instance? Right. Um, I, I think that, you know, this leads to a very, very important... Um, I, look, first of all, this is a dream for every theorist, right? That you propose something that an experiment or observer actually takes seriously enough to actually test, right? So in that sense, I feel very fulfilled. Um, you know, but however, the sort of the this issue of recognition, you know, sort of the larger issue of recognition is a really tricky one, right? And what I have found my own personal experience has been really mixed um, in terms of um, sort of recognition and credit for ideas. And I sort of put it down to, you know, a lot of my papers, um, a lot of my papers that I thought were extremely original and inventive are really not cited as often as I would have thought, right? So, so my, in my judgment, what I thought was extremely original, inventive, and creative, those are not necessarily the papers that are cited the most. So I find that kind of odd mm -hmm. uh, in terms of recognition. And I, that's why I said, you know, it's been a sort of a mixed kind of experience. And But, you know, on the other hand, I also realized that, um, and then there are papers where I don't think, you know, my, what I've done, I mean, I aim, every time I write a paper, I aim to have something new and creative in it, right? That's my bar for writing any paper, right? And so, and then there are papers where I thought, hmm, this is kind of, you know, quite simple um, and uh, not as profound, cute, but not as profound, and those things kind of catch fire. So you can never quite predict one's own sense of what is going to be recognized and how is often off. At least I find that for me, it's been quite off. I don't have as good a radar for it, I have to say. But, you know, coming back to the larger question of recognition in a more broader thing, a broader palette, 
you know, it has to do with uh, mentors and sponsors. And this is a distinction that I discovered only very recently. So, you know, I've had a lot of mentors and not as many sponsors. And that's, you know, um, been a consequence of um, a really unusual career path that I've had, which I'm very grateful for, but it has had its pluses and minuses. So basically the difference between mentors and sponsors is that mentors are people who will speak to you and sponsors are people who will speak for you, right? Who will talk about your work, who will mm -hmm. promote you and who will nominate you for prizes and things like that. So, you know, normally in the course of our long career arc and the foundational period, like most people do several postdocs, and you know, that's when you accrete sponsors and mentors, right? And I was very fortunate that, you know, I had a very successful PhD, and so I didn't quite do a postdoc. I became a fellow of Trinity College, which is sort of like a postdoctoral fellowship, but I got it when I was still a graduate student before I finished my thesis, right? And then soon after that, with a whole sort of strange set of interesting circumstances, um, I ended up with a faculty job, a junior faculty position at Yale, which I postponed joining and then I eventually joined. But you know, I did not have a postdoc mentor, um, a sponsor, somebody who would be interested in my career. And that, you know, has proved to have some disadvantages later on. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, when I give advice to young people, I do tell them that, you know, they, you know, the uncertainty in the career path and so on, I understand is quite difficult when you're young. But then, you know, if you do have the kind of, uh, you know, non-traditional track that I did, um, it really looks good, but there are some downsides to that too, right? So I think that, you know, in our field, we really need to rethink uh, recognition. That's That would be my sort of conclusion. Now, having worked in the field for almost 20, 20, 20 odd years, that I think we have a lot of prizes and I think the prizes are distorting only because uh, you need to be nominated for them. I firmly believe that uh, we should have self-nomination for awards and prizes. I, for one, um, and I can you know, come clean on this, I have felt extremely awkward to ask anyone to nominate me for a prize, uh, and I've not really been able to do that. And yeah, it's it definitely an odd conversation. It's, it's undoubtedly an awkward conversation. And it's kind of a conversation that I would hope you wouldn't have to have, um, but exactly. unfortunately, you do. A sponsor, right? And that's where the sponsors come in because the the sponsor sees that sees it as their role. I mean, that's the kind of investment they have in you and your career. So, if you have a bunch of sponsors, then you know there's no need for such a conversation. It would naturally happen. But if you happen to be someone for all kinds of reasons, and I gave you one example of mine, which is you have an unusual career track. Or, you know, and this is where it matters who you are. So if you are from an, um, if you're a woman or if you are a person of color and underrepresented minority group, then, you know, it's a little harder for you to find both mentors and sponsors because, you know, a lot of this mentoring, sponsoring, this has a big psychological angle to it, right? Mm -hmm. People who are older people, more, um, experts, established people, uh, stalwarts in the field often look to young people and there's a kind of kinship that they feel when they see someone who reminds them of who they were like or their struggles 
or what they were like when they were a young person. So if you are coming from um, an underrepresented minority group in some way or the other, so, you know, like if you are a person of color, if you are international, you did your PhD elsewhere, and like I did, you know, I did my PhD in England, you know, all of these things matter because, you know, you're not part of the same kind of landscape that people can identify your experiences, right, with their experiences. And I think it's much, much harder for uh, groups of people, many groups of people to find um, mentors and sponsors because it's psychological. I mean, we are human. Um, and, you know, and that side of science also fascinates me, right? The human side of how the human emotional and psychological side really impacts not just the doing of the science, but also all these other ancillary sort of, you know, getting recognition, a career track, how that impacts us, right? So um, I think that it would be, you know, I have been advocating um, in many different ways for leveling the playing field for everyone in our field. And I seriously think that, you know, the next thing that I'm going to start really talking a lot more about is allowing, permitting self-nominations for awards and prizes. I think that would really uh, make a very big difference in terms of the range of people who get recognized. Yeah, I agree. And and Priya, I know that you, you have to go soon, but I want to raise one point. Yeah. I think it's an important point. And it's one of scientific styles because it, yeah. it falls into this idea that we're talking about right now. If you look at the news, the scientific news, what do you see? You see LIGO, you see CERN, you see large collaborations. And there's two fundamental problems with awards and the way that they're structured right now as they as they concern collaborations. The first is that it alienates people who do science differently, people who don't want to be in huge collaborations, people who – are theorists who are working, doing great work with one or two students. They don't need to be in these, you know, huge thousand person groups. And then the second problem that I see is that it doesn't just alienate people who do science differently. It also doesn't recognize the work of the majority. It alienates the people in the collaboration who do a damn good job, but aren't necessarily at the head, the, t the tip of the sphere, the tip of the spear. And so, you have like the 2017 Nobel Prize. Those three Nobel laureates are fantastic. I would never be able to stand here and say that they don't deserve the award for the 2017. They don't deserve the 2017 Nobel. I could never say that. That's false. They do. They put in great work. But what about the fourth person on the totem pole? What about the fifth and the sixth? You know, so we, we, there's a fundamental problem in two fronts there that I see. Right. I mean, I think there are two different issues, both of which are important. First is that funding agencies, colleagues, increasingly philanthropists who are investing money and resources in our field, they all have to respect many different kinds of doing science. And I really want to emphasize it's really our colleagues. Our colleagues really have to respect everyone who works differently. So there are people who work and thrive in large collaborations, and there are people who work in medium-sized groups. There are people like me who work in very small groups. And you know what? We all deserve respect. We're all trying to do interesting things. And we you know, deserve a fair shake in terms of access to resources and uh, facilities, grants, um, and recognition. So, you know, I think that, and science will, we will not have great breakthroughs unless 
many different styles are fostered. Part of the reason for that is that when you work in a very large collaboration, it's large resources are required. You need the expertise of thousands of people. You have extremely well articulated questions. That's how uh, that's what allows you to set up a collaboration in the first place. And so, you know, and you need that kind of combined effort to solve the kinds of questions you are posing. Right. However, one limitation is that because it's so clearly articulated, that limits the scope of what, you know, it kind of, in my opinion, it circumscribes the discovery space. Whereas people who work on their own, who are working in small groups, can take intellectual risks, can take more intellectual risks than the people who are in large collaborations. And, you know, and who knows? Nobody knows where the next breakthrough is going to come from. So you have to allow an ecosystem to flourish that enables and actually allows all kinds of people to have access to funds and uh, and resources. So then this question of group work, collaborations and recognition, yes, that's very complicated too. And I think what ends up happening, you know, I have not worked in a large collaboration, so I don't actually, because, you know, the politics and the the mechanics of working in a large collaboration you know, where you have to be on a phone call, a telecon, you know, every every other day or whatever, that does not appeal to me as a style. Personally. It's terrible. It's, it's, it's a personal choice. I mean, I'm not going to make any value judgment. People make choices. I mean, to me, that's not a style that works for me. But I think I therefore I don't know enough about who decides how it's deci- decided who's at the top of the sphere, a sphere in terms of the workload, right? But it seems to me that these collaborations have very, um, you know, hierarchical ways of determining who is where and who should get recognition and partitioning out the recognition to people. Um, I just think that that's very, very fraught. And as you rightly say, majority of people are kind of left out, even if they, you know, if they pick out a handful, right? It's not just the three that get the Nobel, but, you know, another three, another three, another three or whatever, even then, right? It's not like a fair um, attribution to the kind of work that um, would not have been possible without some multitudes kind of pitching in. So I think the politics of large collaborations is not something that I can uh, speak to because I don't have experience of it. But um, I can definitely say that what needs to change in our culture and mindset, you know, it really comes down to openness again, right? I mean, I think there isn't enough openness uh, in terms of wanting to share resources with people who do science in a multiplicity of ways and respecting what they do. So for one thing that I see right now, I've been at a stage for the last decade or so where I write a lot of letters for tenure decisions, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I think what I have often, and, you know, I've been on committees and I've sort of seen how this works. And, you know, I've had to spend a lot of time and energy on those committees convincing people that uh, of not drawing equivalencies and being able to make judgments. So for example, you have a candidate who has been in a large collaboration, has 92 papers from that collaboration with 15,000 citations. And, you know, and they are not the first author in all 92 of them. Clearly, they are, you know, they are sprinkled in the authorship at various places throughout those papers, right? Compare that to somebody who is working with a group of maybe three or five people who has written 60 papers or 50 papers and has only 8,000, 7,000 citations. Um, in my opinion, you actually cannot compare these two individuals and you have to evaluate each of them 
as a part of their larger context. And, you know, often in tenure decisions and decisions of prizes and nominations for this, that and the other, these kinds of equivalencies, in my opinion, false equivalencies are um, established and benchmarks that really aren't benchmarks are used and to the disadvantage of people who have published fewer papers with fewer citations. So I basically think, look, at this point, we know that all these metrics are flawed. We know now from studies that, you know, uh, papers that have women as first authors identifiable are cited less than those with male identifiable first authors. We also know that people who are in large collaborations um, actually have a larger number of citations because, you know, there are collaborations, they cite each other and, you know, whatever, right? So there's an amplification. So, and we also know that in terms of, you know, all this bias studies of all conscious and unconscious bias, our awareness of these biases, recommendation letters are loaded with biases. I mean, we know all of that, right? That landscape is really complicated. We know that. Despite that, you know, the scientific community is still clinging to these metrics. I mean, without kind of recognizing that these are flawed metrics. We've got to understand the limits of these metrics. And in my opinion, what we really need are new metrics. We knew an, a new metric that is multidimensional for a really, uh, for a person to be a really productive, um, to be judged to be a very productive um, and brilliant scientist. There are many, many facets on which they have to excel. And those facets go beyond just papers, citations, uh, awards. They also have to do with how they approach problems, how creative they are, how many intellectual risks they take, how collegial they are. Do they actually uh, mentor younger people? How effective have they been in mentoring younger people? Um, do they care about their teaching? Because as an academic um, in a university setting, teaching is, you know, one of the things that, um, is of great importance because you are impacting minds of the next generation, right? And often teaching doesn't, you know, get the same kind of uh, status, um, especially in the Research One University. So I think, you know, a multidimensional evaluation is sort of what we need. Uh, you know, that will take, it takes, it's more time consuming to make those evaluations. And you need an open mind because all of us come with a different set of gifts. We need people who are gifted in as many different ways as possible to contribute to science if we want to make breakthrough discoveries. I agree with everything you said. I think it's fantastic. And in conclusion to the interview, Priya, I want to mention, I'll mention one thing and you can comment on it on the way out. The Space Telescope Science Institute noticed an issue with the way the proposals were done. This falls in line with everything we've been talking about. There was an issue. There was a gender bias. Men who were the, the lead PI on proposals got accepted at rates way higher than lead women. And you were one of the people who helped come up with a solution. You instituted a double-blind process that to applications... Fact, I, didn't, I didn't institute that solution, but... Um... Yeah, let me clarify, right? So a couple of years ago, Quartz Magazine did a series on how we'll win, where they interviewed a whole bunch of uh, women visionaries, so they call them, and asked them, um, and they were asking us many questions about, you know, my experience, my take on the field, and much like the podcast conversation today. 
And so one of the things I told them that I was really tired of being asked, what does it feel like to be a woman in science? I told them, look, I'm just going to tell you that, you know, I feel like an insider and an outsider. When I was younger, I didn't understand the merits of this. I always struggled because I wanted to be an insider. And now I see it's actually powerful to kind of skirt these boundaries. Mm -hmm. Then I said, ask me something about what I can, we can do positively. Is there something that my community can do that I think will change things? And I said, uh, ask me that and I'll tell you. So they said, okay, what, what can the community do? And I said, I think that one thing that the astronomy community could really do is to implement double blind reviews of grants and proposals, uh, if possible. And I said, I know it's tricky, it's hard, but you know, the evidence that we see some, some other fields where they've done it has been spectacularly good. So then it turns out that, you know, Space Telescope had an internal committee. Uh, they have a Space Telescope Users Committee, and they came up with the solution. You know, I don't know if my having said this earlier had any direct impact. I have no way of knowing that. But I know that um, the reason I was asked to chair the committee was because they knew that I was invested in that. So, you know, they proposed, it was an internal decision. Uh, it was very bold. Um, I really laud them for this because it's absolutely fantastic. There was a lot of opposition and they still went ahead and said, we're gonna do this, right? And so they implemented a double blind review for allocation of Hubble Space Telescope time. Uh, and I chaired um, that review. And, you know, I was very nervous. I was very excited and nervous. Excited because, you know, I knew this was going to be history-making, right? And I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. I mean, it, you know, I am devoted to leveling the play playing field, as I said, and making science an equal opportunity um, playground for every curious mind, no matter where they are, what they look like, who they are. And uh, so, you know, for me, that's a personal passion that, I want to make something better for the next generation. That, that would be a life of consequence, aside from, you know, having one's ideas ratified and so on and so forth. So, uh, but we didn't know what the outcome of such a process would be, right? But it was very gratifying to see the outcome, uh, even in one cycle. And the process, I have to tell you, I was also quite nervous going in about how would this work? How would we, would people spend a lot of time trying to figure out who it was or whatever? It turns out not at all. In fact, what was refreshing about this proposal round compared to many others that I've served on is that all the reviewers focused on the science. They had to focus on the science because you could now not say something like, you know, so-and-so is a leader in this field and he has already gotten a lot of public time and published great papers, etc. I mean, that was completely cut out of the conversation. Uh, people had to persuade and show us their expertise, competence, and their originality in that proposal. Of course, this means, you know, we've got to learn uh, to write these kinds of proposals. The community has to learn. Um, and I think that, um, you know, we will, uh, because even in the first round, it was, there was, I think, one proposal that we thought was written in a way that wasn't really suitable. It wasn't really blinded enough. But other than that, um, it was really stunning for the first time the uh, proportion of time awarded um, to uh, men versus uh, um, women PIs was proportional to their fraction in the applicant pool. That's awesome. It's incredible. And I've talked to people that are in the proposal review committees, and they insist 
There's no bias here. There's no bias here. We don't pick people who are more senior in the field. We don't pick people based on name value. But it undoubtedly happens, whether it's conscious or not conscious. And I think that this idea, undoubtedly you can see the benefits, and I think that it would be good for the scientific community at large if we could adapt it in more places. I know. I think for the Space Telescope one, I really want to give a shout out to two people. One is Neil Reed. Uh, Neil Reed, um, and he's at the Space Telescope Science Institute. I mean, he was fantastic. So what he realized was that, you know, this bias doesn't actually appear in any, if you look at any particular year, right? You plan it's within the errors. But when you accumulate the effect of three years, you start seeing the systematic offset. So he did the study of 20 years of data. And it was, you know clear as day. And then he immediately hired people, you know, Stephanie Johnson and one of our graduate students at the University of, uh, of Colorado who work on understanding, you know, uh, bias and unconscious bias and so on. And so he brought them in as uh, observers and, uh, you know, for a couple of years, couple of rounds, they quickly, they saw, they understood the process. They did a few pilot test things, um, and then they said, well, I think the way out is a double blind. And I want to give a shout out to Ken Sembach, who is the current director of the Space Telescope Science Institute, who boldly went ahead and did this. And, you know, at the start of the process of the proposal review, uh, he made it very clear, this is a commitment. This is not a pilot. This is how it's going to be. And I really hope NSF and NASA, uh, other the two other granting uh, fund um Grant, granting agencies for astronomy astrophysics follow suit. I would be super excited if that happened. I agree 100%. And I I don't think that, that it, it will only solve gender bias. I think it will solve many, many, many other biases. Absolutely. Absolutely. Spot on. You know, especially if there, um, there have to be biases of um, various kinds. We know that they have to be in there because, you know, we are human and these things happen. For example, um, disadvantaging, you know, ageism as well as um, disadvantaging people from smaller colleges yes. versus for the name bias, right? So identification bias. That's the see- one that comes to mind for me, yeah. Yeah. So with that being said, Priya, I appreciate your time. If there's anything you want to plug before you go, I encourage you, tell people where they can find you, tell people where they can find your book, all of that. There will be links in the descriptions of all the various platforms. Yeah, so I think that um, – I uh, would like to um, encourage people to um, to actually read my book uh, because I think, um, as I said, it's not really just about the discoveries. I do that too. But I really talk about the process of science. And I actually think it might be a fun thing for astronomers and uh, scientists, practicing scientists to read, not just for the curious public. And uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Shirpriya. And um, I have... A website where um, it's really um, it's being currently updated under construction at the moment but it should be up and running very soon so um, yeah and I also write occasionally I am a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books where you know you review books and sort of write essays on um, so I review books in science that deal with a scientific process uh, as well as the big questions so, um, yeah, I welcome people to read and uh, read things I write and send me back some feedback. All right. And with that being said, people, thank you for listening. I appreciate you being here. Priya, I appreciate you being here. And we're done. Bye.